evening. Delighted to be back. Uh, I've always enjoyed being here. And this time when I was given the uh, the opportunity and the invitation and the theme for the month and thought about covenant, uh, I began to realize that of all the readings that I do, because of my early training in uh, the Episcopal tradition, that everything I remember uh, came from the Bible. So I thought, I can't, I don't have 20 years to do some further research for some stuff about covenant to share with you, so you're going to have to just put up with the Bible. (laughs) And the reading that uh, Susie just read from uh, Genesis is a familiar story, I am sure. It's familiar to most people. There's a lot of people that know the story but don't know where it came from. And I love that story because it is one of the most multiply interpreted stories that we have in Holy Scripture. Um, And the problem with the multiple interpretations is that you don't find them in any one place. You go over here and you'll find an interpretation. You go here, you find another one, and here you find another one. Well, I want to share some with you that I'm familiar with. And the first one is the oldest interpretation came from St. Augustine many years ago that said that this was an expression of original sin of humanity. And there's been lots and lots of arguments about that concept of original sin, which has no place in Holy Scripture. There's no place where it talks about original sin. That's the interpretation that has been given from lots of other things that occur. Another interpretation of this story that I particularly like is, and I cannot find a source for this, but I remember it, is the interpretation that this is a story about how the woman has to tell the man it's time to act. (laughs) You've, You've walked around it long enough. It's time to do something. That's actually my favorite interpretation of, of this story. Um, uh, another interpretation that has been kind of off to the side and just sort of percolating for, I think, centuries and is beginning to get a revival. And the first time I was introduced to the revival was just just the year the year after I got out of seminary actually. And it came from the writings of a man called Matthew Fox. 
I think he was a Methodist, I'm not sure. But anyway, Matthew Fox talks about the original goodness of humanity. Well, that didn't catch on very well. <laughs> and it's hard to embrace that. It's actually easier to embrace the original sin of humanity when you look at how we treat each other culturally, socially, politically, economically. It's easy to see that aspect of humanity. A new reading has come out for me lately called Freedom, the End of the Human Condition. This is written by an Australian. And I find it interesting because what he talks about is that the philosophies and theologies, but particularly the philosophies of early times, talks about how we have ignored the nature of who we are and that the nature of who we are is good. And the one that he refers to most frequently in his writing is Plato's story of the of living in the cave, of people I think are familiar with that one also, that actually humanity lives in a cave with a fire behind them that casts shadows. So all that we see are just shadows of the reality. We don't see reality. And that when we walk away from the fire over towards the entrance of the cave, and see the light and the sun shining, it is so bright and frightening that we go back into the cave. We do not want to see the reality. The reality scares us. Well, it goes on, and now I'll leave what he's saying and tell you what I'm saying. It goes on that the reality is is that when you look at the nature of the human being, you're going to get two sides. We're not good and we're not evil. We're both. We are both. And this writing that I've been reading lately has encouraged me to think of it in terms of the in terms of the creation story as to which came first. And which came first is the good. The creation story says everything God created is good. Good, it's good. Create this, it's good. Create that, it's good. And after all creation is finished in the story, God says, and it's very good. And then we have the story of the Garden of Eden. All right, now this relates to this new writing because the new writing says that science, this is, a, this is a real twist, that science is finally catching up with philosophy. And what he goes on to talk about is the science of evolution, the science of biology. 
And he talks about our nervous system develops later in life for the human being. Not for the individual, not for me or you, but as we evolve, the nervous system came in later and our consciousness arose from our nervous system. But that our nature was embedded in who we were before that occurred. And what has happened is that our consciousness has taken over. So what we think, we think is superior to what we intuit. And he goes on, he talks about a premise that I accept is, you know, all the arguments that we have about what's right and what's wrong are simply that, just arguments that we create out of our own mind. Because rarely have I ever found anybody who didn't know the right thing to do. I have found lots of people who don't do the right thing including myself at times. And we have, in with our minds, now we have created degrees of right and wrong. You know, and I don't do this, so I'm better than that person. I don't do that because I'm a better person than that one. And that's not true. And that's what throws us back into the cave looking at the shadows is because it is too scary to look at the fullness of who we are. It's too scary to see just exactly how evil you can be. So what we do with our mind is that when we're confronted with that, we again compartmentalize it and decide that one's the evil, this one's not. I might be a little bad. You know, I might do a few things wrong. I might not think properly all the time, but I'm not evil. That person is evil. Or that group is evil. And I don't think there's much argument about the reality that we do that. We can look at our current political scene without even looking at the world scene, to see that we do that with each other. I have never known a war to be fought because somebody thought they were bad, evil, and they wanted to conquer the good. Never. Never has a war been fought on those conditions. So we take the nature of who we are and we divide it so that we can live with it. At least we think we can live with it that way. Another way we do it is that we we create covenants to control the situation. And we have legal covenants which uh, Our society upholds, uh, you know, real estate covenants, wills, all kinds of covenants. Uh, The laws that we have. And we also have religious covenants that are not legally enforceable, but 
the religious communities can use those covenants as a means of suppression, as a means of oppression, and as a means of punishment, and as a means of excluding people. So they are enforced just as much as legal covenants are enforced, but in a different kind of way. I want to read to you another reading that follows the garden. Let me see if I can find it here. Yes, this this is uh, also in the book of Genesis in the Bible. And this is about uh, Jacob uh, making a covenant with Laban. And these are people that have, have a a kinship with one another. And there has been contention between them and they meet in the desert and come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsfolk, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap And then they sat around and they ate. And then Laban looked at this heap and he said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. And this heap was called Gilead, but the pillar was called Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. When I was a teenager, we used to buy little coins that were called Mizpah coins that were cut in half and they had a heart on it and the heart was cut in half. And you took half and gave the other half to your girlfriend as a sign that you were connected with each other. Had this lovely romantic concept about it until I found out what Mizpah meant. And what that meant was that I've got God watching over you when we're separated, and if you do anything wrong, he's going to get you. (laughs) And when I discovered that was the meaning of Mizpah, I decided to quit using them. (laughs) And that's what we do with a lot of our tradition and a lot of our history. We twist it and turn it to meet whatever we want at the time. I don't know that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it does mislead us a lot. So we have these covenants, and we break these covenants. We break them regularly. But there's another covenant that I want to talk about that I think is becoming more and more and more prominent in our social, political, and economic life. And that's the personal spiritual covenant. Because I think today we are much more concerned about what I want, what I believe, and what I think is right than what we think the society the culture, 
or any other group that we might be a part of holds up as dear and true. I know I'm guilty of that. Um, this significant change in our culture, I think, began after World War II, was kind of came to its peak during the 60s, 1960s, but it has been increasing ever since. To where today we have in our uh, in our political climate today, we have incredible division. I mean, it's just incredible. And I don't know if it's going to get any better. My guess, my personal guess is it's going to get worse. The economic division and in not just our country, but in the world is also more severe than it has been for a long time between those who have and those who do not. So we are separating more and more and more. And that separation, I do believe, is coming out of this concept that we hold so dear and true to ourselves is that what I want is what's important. And I will justify it. That's the first thing, the, the interesting thing, the first thing I learned when I went to seminary for education was that I can justify anything I want to justify. I mean anything. And that has been a problem and a contention within me ever since, and it still is. Because also what I have in me is I do not want to be subject to what others say or do simply because that's what they say or do. So I began to struggle with, well, what is it I do hold allegiance to? Just what I want? I tried for a while of holding allegiance to what my institution, the church that I was a part of for so long, what it held. And I chose that, and I chose it particularly because it was not a covenant church. It was not a doctrinal or dogmatic church. We have a lot of people within our tradition, the Episcopal tradition that I'm from, who have been working for years to try and make it dogmatic and make it covenant because we want to be able to say, this is what we believe as an organization. The wisdom of the tradition that I come from is that it is a community of people of prayer, not a people of covenant, not a people of a dogma. We are people that come together in common to pray. We don't have a common prayer. We come together in common to pray. And we have a book that we use for that.
So that, that satisfied me for a long time, and in fact, it still does satisfy me. What doesn't satisfy me is that I am a very small minority that still sees our organization that way. The division within our organization mirrors the division that I see in our culture. Now, I don't know, because I'm not a Unitarian Universalist, but my guess is, is that if I were a Unitarian Universalist and that I was familiar with the organization, not just locally but nationally, etc., I'd find the same dynamic. I mean, that's just who we are as human beings. So every place I'd look gives me support for that's who we are. And the question begins to come to me, how are we going to live with this without being, without continuing to be destructive to one another, without continuing to get more and more divisive, and without continuing to enhance the violence that we use to keep ourselves separated from one another. And the only place I can go for hope for that is in the long view. Nothing short term. And in the long view, I mean in an evolutionary concept of the long view. And I take this writing from this book, Freedom, The End of the Human Condition, as a model. Because his model is that the evolutionary process is catching up. The biological evolutionary process is catching up with our original existence, our original coming into the world that eventually our nervous system, which is our brain and other parts, will come into line with the nature of who we are as creatures. And that we will begin to use the consciousness and the mental powers that we have for the goodness and not for the separation. Now, when I think about it, and I'm honest with myself, I think when I think in terms of that kind of long-range and evolutionary kind of hope, to me, that's not a hell of a lot different than the fundamentalists putting their hope in heaven. Yeah, because it's not going to happen while I'm hanging around. <laughs> But it makes sense to me. It just makes sense to me. I wish I had some kind of plan or some kind of concept that we could latch onto to help us along with it. But I don't. 
Accept what has been helpful for me is that I have been, I've been able to distinguish for myself my mental, nervous system, brain, consciousness, thinking power. And I know that is different from my feelings. And I know from experimentation that my feelings are not any better, if not sometimes worse, than operating out of my consciousness. And we have our mental capacity and our thinking and our nervous system like that. We have that associated with our, with our head. And we have had feelings associated with the heart, and that's a misplacement. Feelings have actually come out of our gut. You know, we even use the phrase gut feelings. And that our heart is where we associate and have for centuries where goodness and love comes from. And what we have done is that we take our gut and our head and we bypass the heart. And I think, oh, one other thing. I have a blog that I have to change the name. Because the blog says something to the effect from your heart to the head. And when I titled that, I was thinking in terms of the heart containing my feelings and saying that my feelings need to run through some rational calming down process before I do anything. But what I need to do now is to start thinking about the head and the gut need to run through the heart. The heart needs to be the final decision point. I have a sister and a brother-in-law whom I dearly love and who are very kind and caring people for their family and their friends. And even for me, even when we get into this state of incredible disagreement about, about the political world, about the environment, about almost anything, that will cause them to give up some old beliefs and would cause them to think about themselves as being just as bad as the rest of us. They can't do it. You know? And it's painful. It's painful to watch because they just can't do it. And I use them as an illustration because they're close to home. But I think that reality is expressed in all of us to some extent or another, but to some more than others, that we hold on to things. 
And I think what we're holding on to are personal covenants that we have made in our life. Now, the way these personal covenants get made is that as we, as we are born and grow and mature, we are involved with a lot of people that have a lot of influence over us and that we give a lot of authority to. And we take what they say to us and ingest it in ourselves and it gets embedded into our beliefs and our decision-making and we, they even become unconscious after a while. And we just operate from that. Another way of talking about it is the early decisions that we make. And some uh, psychologists even theorize that these early decisions are made and are solidified by the time we're three years old. And then they've gone into the unconscious. Others are saying that what happens is that when we become adolescent age, that we begin to do our own thinking and that's when we do the rebellion against some of those early decisions. But we don't rebel against all of them. Some early decisions for me happened when one illustration I have is I grew up thinking the church was a very safe place. I didn't grow up as an Episcopalian. I grew up as a Baptist. And, but one of the earliest memories I have is maybe four years old, being in the church. And my mother, I don't know what happened, but anyway, she passed out. And everybody was, you know, helping her out. I was four years old. Mom was laying on the floor and everybody was helping her out. So I just started running around the church and going up to the altar rail and crawling over it and, and you know, just all this. Stuff. And I'll never forget this man came up to me and said, what are you doing? It's all I remember. And what I remember is looking up at him and thinking, this is my place, not yours. <laughs> And continued to function that way. Well, I lived in the church that way for a long time. And boy, did it get me in trouble <laughs> later on in life, you know. Because it wasn't my place. I was just one of many that were there. But that was an early decision I made. I don't think it was a bad one. It was just an early decision I made. And another early decision I made was that when I was in the first grade... I had a school teacher that was horrible. I mean, horrible. She used to walk up behind us, and if we were talking to a kid beside her, she'd hit us over the head with a wooden paddle. Another thing she used to do was that if we were a little bit more uh, disruptive, she would stand us against these concrete pillars that came down the middle of the room and hold our ears and hit our head against the pillar. I'm convinced I got brain damage from that. 
But an early decision I made there was that school is a scary and ugly place. And that remained true for me until I got into, guess what? Seminary. A school that was associated with the church. Then I could learn. Then I could ask questions. Then I could be myself. Then I could do what I wanted to do. And my learning, I mean, my academic career from uh, elementary school through high school and through college was just borderline. And as the assistant... uh, as as the assistant dean of the seminary said to me, he said, you know, he says, I was doing some research on the learning curve of students as they entered as compared to, you know, where they came from, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, and I had this beautiful curve going along until you came. (laughs) Because I just blossomed, you know, academically. And I loved it. So we make these early decisions that impact us forever. Some are easy to let go of, and some of them we just, it just takes a lot of struggle and suffering to let go of. The best illustration I have of letting go of an early decision is a parishioner, member of the congregation, came up to me one Sunday and said, You know, ever since I've been coming back to church, he said, I've just been throwing a couple of dollars in the offering uh, every Sunday because that's just what I always did. So that's just what I always did. And he said, and then one Sunday you were telling a story about being at a, a non, not-for-profit theater group. And at the end of the production, the director comes out and, and explains that, you know, we live on what you give us. And one of his comments was that just remember that when the plate comes around that it cost $5. This was in the 60s. That cost $5 to go to a bad movie. (laughs) I always gave more than $5 at at that place. Well, the member of the congregation that came up to me said, when I heard that story, I went home and I started thinking, i just been throwing a dollar or two in the plate because that's just what I've always done. And he said, and that's totally unreasonable for now. So he said, I changed it to $50 a week. And I thought, God, fundraising should be so easy. You know? <laughs> but that was just an old belief that he had that he was able just to you know, drop. Now, we all have those because those kinds of things happen to us where we just make an immediate change. The struggle to have the good life that we all want to have is the struggle of not letting our consciousness and our thinking powers overrule what we know is right. 